You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. It's good to be with you all this morning. If you have a Bible with you, I'd like to encourage you to open with me to the book of Revelation. And it wasn't too long ago that we worked our way through the book of Revelation together, but as we are thinking about uh, this uh, in-between series that we have for the summer, uh, reminding ourselves about the truth of the gospel, there's a particular passage here that we thought it would be good for us to, to revisit and think a little bit more about. Uh, as we had last week, we're really just looking at a, a single verse, one spot, but um, I do want to read a couple verses as we kind of get going here. As you know, uh, we've been thinking together about different topics centered around the idea that our gospel is too small. Your gospel is too small is the name of the series. And what we've been doing is we've been saying that the gospel is more than something else or, or better than something. And in each case, we're trying to explore this dynamic that the gospel has this kind of, yeah, and there's more. Like the things that we understand that we talk about when we talk about the gospel, so many of them are true And they're true as far as they go, but we're only scratching the surface of those things. And so this morning, the topic that we're going to be thinking about is is that the gospel removes more than guilt. So let's begin just by reading these passages, or these few verses here, at the beginning of Revelation chapter 21. We read this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among the people, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And here in verse 4 is the the verse we're going to be thinking and focusing on this morning. It says this, And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And if we keep reading past that, we read, And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. So as we as a church think together about the the meaning of the gospel and what it is, of course, we know some of the basic outlines of the gospel. It is, I hope that we all know and we understand that that we were created by God to live in a perfect relationship with him as his representatives in this world. But we broke that by rebelling against him, throwing off his rule and deciding to live on our own with our own rule and reign, doing our own thing. And that rejecting of God, living life on our own terms is what the Bible calls sin. And there are a whole slew of categories of sin as we walk through scripture, right? But God didn't just leave us there. If we had sin, what we would have ended up with was death, destruction, judgment. That would be our end. But instead, God sent his own son, Jesus Christ, God himself, in the flesh, lived the life we couldn't live, died the death on our behalf, taking the penalty of our sin. He went into the grave, he rose again, and we know that one day he's coming again. Those, those are the outlines of what we mean by this declaration. 
And what an amazing thing it is that that the truth of what Jesus accomplished for us can belong to you and I by faith alone. It's not a matter of working harder to try to get in. It It is a work of God as he transforms our hearts. We place our trust in him and he changes us. By God's grace, nothing that we do to accomplish it. But it gets complicated as we, as we try to think about some of these things. We, uh, we sometimes will, will think about some of these different parts of the gospel or part of what, part of what goes along with it. And this morning, the, the topic for us to think about is this uh, guilt. And I want to expand that a little bit by thinking about some of the kind of primary motivators of humans in a fallen world. And these are things like guilt, shame, fear, these are things that the, the emotions, the feelings that kind of sit at, at the core that the gospel certainly deals with, but it can get a bit complicated for us. So as we think about these things, I want to suggest to you, I want to, I want to plant this image in your mind, this, this, uh, this, this phrase, and uh, we'll, we'll work with it here in a minute. The thing that I think we all need to understand is more about movie star penguins, Movie star penguins. If you and I can understand movie star penguins, then this whole picture of the gospel is going to be so much more clear for us. Without understanding movie star penguins, you're going to struggle to really understand the gospel well. You're not really going to be able to articulate it well in, a, in the modern world. And I'll come back to movie star penguins in a second. You and I were driven often in a fallen world by guilt and fear and shame. These are, these are things that are central. If you talk to anthropologists or people who study human motivation, these are some of the things that they use to study cultures. They'll describe this culture as an, as an honor-shame culture or more of a guilt or a fear. Like these, are, these are the sorts of things that motivate human beings. They're often the, the, the target of folks who are thinking about uh, psychology or psychotherapy, how to help people uh, get, get, their, get their mind together. And it's interesting that there was, a, there was a sociologist by the name of Philip Reef who wrote about the idea that essentially what has happened in the last uh, century or so is that there's been this turn to thinking about life and everything in therapeutic terms. Essentially, the main concern for people in life isn't so much about, am I in right standing with the God of the universe? It's not even, am I in right standing with my neighbors or society as a whole? It's become a kind of self-centered view. The questions that are asked are things like, do I feel fulfilled? Am I true to myself? Those questions sound, sound real, right? That, those are the things that, that we hear from our neighbors. Those are the things that, that we might even say to ourselves. And so I want to suggest to you that movie star penguins is going gonna, is gonna to help us. So I'm going to put an image up here that's going to help us to think about this. So what we can see here on, on the left here, on, on the left, is classic movie stars. If we look at classic movie stars, they're on the left side. And on the right side, we have penguins, okay? Bear with me. I know. I know. We're, we're riding here. So in the middle, though, what we have that they share is that they're both black and white, right? They share the colors black and white. So what you might think or someone might be confused about is by seeing a penguin and say, mm, the penguin is black and white. Therefore, the penguin must be a movie star. 
And you can immediately see from looking at this, that's terrible logic, right? They share a common quality of being black and white, but they're not the same thing. They're two different things. And you wouldn't want to just say, if you're a defender of penguins, and you wanted to to say, no, penguins aren't movie stars. We need to understand the truth about penguins. What you wouldn't want to say is, penguins are not black and white at all. Penguins have nothing to do with being black and white. And then you, you remove the circle so they're purple or something like that. And penguins are no longer black and white. Now, you're no longer talking about penguins as penguins. Go ahead and go to the next one. Now, we have something very similar that's happening here. On the left side, we have this kind of therapeutic culture that Philip Reef talked about. That's what you and I live in. That's what people are talking about when we're sharing the gospel with them. Do I feel fulfilled? Am I happy? Those are the questions they're asking. And often, they will have uh, concerns about dealing with an individual's feelings of guilt, shame, fear. They talk about those things. What we find in the gospel is that the gospel also addresses guilt and shame and fear. Those are things that the gospel touches on. Now, just like the defender of penguins, as we are defending the gospel, we don't want to say, well, the gospel doesn't have anything to do with how you feel. Your feelings have nothing to do with it. In fact, there's an overlap. But we do want to say there are things that distinguish these two things. When we are affirming these things about the gospel, that it addresses guilt and shame and fear and these core motivations, we don't want to just fall into the trap of affirming everything that the culture says and where we're coming from. And so I think as, we, as you keep this model in your mind a little bit as we work through, it's going to help us to think about the gospel. As we see this picture of everything that is addressed in the message that the gospel declares to us. Let's hear... Verse 4 again. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. So if we step outside of the kind of the big picture, the high level, uh, you know, a century of thinking about these things, how do we as people, how are we driven by guilt, shame, and fear? Are there conversations that you, you don't want to talk about? Things you don't want to, you don't want to approach? You're too afraid of those things? Or do, you have, do you have memories that you, you don't want to think about? Things in your past that you, that you won't mention? Are there times in a conversation where, where you don't want to speak up? You don't want to say something that you know needs to be said. Maybe it's sharing the gospel with someone, but there's a fear that drives you. Are there things that people, you don't want people to see? You see, we're so often driven by these things, but hear this passage. As he will wipe away every tear and no longer will there be any mourning or crying or pain. The gospel, hear this. It's the first point for us this morning to hear from this passage. The gospel gives a comfort that addresses everything. Hear what it says, look at it. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or any crying or any pain. The translators are giving you the sense of the text there. All of it, all of the pain, all of the tears, all of the mourning, all of it will be gone. Those feelings that have driven us will no longer be master. 
That means your sorrow, your pain, the things that have happened to you are included in this. They will have an end. God has declared victory over them and we know that that is coming. Hear that every, all, there will no longer be any. The gospel gives a comfort that addresses everything. Broadly speaking from the Bible, we can divide the, the, the kind of suffering that happens into two different categories. One is suffering that happens because of our sin. We sin, we have to then suffer the consequences of that sin. That goes right along with guilt when we talk about that. We have feelings of guilt, especially when we, when we feel the consequences of our sin coming back at us. But on the other hand, there, we can experience suffering that has nothing to do with something that we've done. It's from others. It's, it's, we're being sinned against. And the Bible describes these things in a number of different ways. In the Old Testament, you have this, this great uh, delineation in the law that gives you a separation between guilt, that is offerings and sacrifices that are done when somebody has committed a sin, and then there's a category of unclean, which is where you have interacted with something in the course of living life that isn't meant to be the way that it is. One of the great examples in the Old Testament is death. When someone would die in Old Testament Israel, the, the people who dealt with that would obviously have to handle the body. There's no way for them to, to care for them, to be able to, to bury and do the things that they would do with that. But what would happen is as soon as you touched a dead body in Old Testament Israel, you were declared unclean. You weren't sinning, but you were now unclean because you touched this. It was something that needed to be done still, but by handling that dead body, the Old Testament would say, you are now unclean. So they would take care of, they would take care of, the, of the body, and then they would be able to go to the, to the priest and uh, do the sacrifices that they needed to do to wash, be purified, and then be clean and in right standing again. Now, to us, in our, our 21st century minds, all of that just sounds like it's, it's out there, it's crazy. We can't quite make sense of all of those things. But I want to suggest to you that it, it is crucial for us to understand that. Because, because God is saying in those, in those instances that he sees and he knows that these parts of life are not the way that they were meant to be, and he has a plan for them. It gets so much more significant if we look into other places in Scripture. And I'd love to kind of dive through and do a deep dive of a whole bunch of different places. We don't necessarily have time for that this morning. But I would suggest that you direct your attention maybe to a place like 2 Samuel 13, where we see Tamar, a daughter of David, who is in this situation where her, her, her brother uh, essentially wants to, wants to come after her and her other brother is trying to defend her. And she ends up being, being sexually abused, raped by her brother. It's a terrible thing that happens there. And her declaration, what she says in there, one of the only, one of the only things that she says is, how will I be rid of my disgrace? How will I be rid of my shame if you do this thing, brother? And what we see in the text is that it, it plays out in a war of brother against brother and one trying to kill the other and this whole thing. But, but Tamar is left there with this open hanging question of what happens now? She has this feeling of shame. 
She has this, this, this thing that has been done to her. She didn't sin. She was sinned against. But in those things, by having a law that speaks to these things, by having a Bible that speaks to these things, God is saying, I see you. I know what happened. And there is a future. There is a plan. There is hope. The Bible addresses everything. The Bible addresses shame. We can see David, as we talked about in in ABF this morning. We know the life of David. If you look at the life of David, you see simultaneously a guy who can hit the heights of doing everything that he's supposed to be doing. He is a model. He is a man after God's own heart. We see his prayers. We see his life. We see so many good things. And then we see David looking at his neighbor's wife, killing his neighbor so he can bring Bathsheba in to his own house. We see David sinning. And we see David being confronted by the prophet Nathan, acknowledging his sin and seeking to have God forgiven. And God addresses that too. You see, the Bible is not shy. I know we're we're talking about some uncomfortable topics this morning. The Bible is not shy about addressing the reality of the pain in our lives. There's nothing that you can or will experience in this life that the Bible does not address in some way. God's word speaks to our lives. And In this way, we see that God, from the beginning, at the very beginning of Israel, when he makes this law, he has a plan. And I would argue going even further back to the garden when Adam and Eve sin, and he makes clothing for them, that he has a plan. All the way from the beginning. He he hasn't forgotten. He puts a name on what is happening. And it can be hard to hear because, you know, some of us might be tempted to think, well, you know, yeah, 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 I got that, but my suffering's different. Pastor, you don't understand this about my life. Yeah, maybe I don't. But God does. And he does speak to it. God sees and knows the hurt and pain that people experience in a fallen world. He knows you by name and he, he's able to, to declare that thing sin and he has a plan for exactly that. As I was thinking about this week, one of the things that, that I thought of that kind of helped give me a little bit of a picture of the feeling that kind of goes along with this, and I hope you can track with me. I hope this isn't too much of, a, of an individual experience. A lot of you know that, that last year, we're coming up on a year from now, uh, there, were, there were three of us, me, my wife, and, and uh, Holly, and then uh, Jamie Martin, we went to Turkey. And uh, it was a great trip. Church sent us out. We were so thankful for, for being a part of that. We got to visit with missionaries who are serving over there. That was fantastic. And then when we were on the way back, we got up early. Well, we didn't get up early because we actually been up all night. And we got to the airport. We're ready to go for this 4 a.m. flight. And then we get in line at like 1.30 because you're supposed to be there early for an international flight. And they say, sorry, no flight. And we were left stranded on the other side of the world with no plan to be able to get out. 
Now, the particular part here that, that I want to share and why, this is, why I think this is helpful is because of what happened immediately after that. The people at the counter there at the airline, they said, ah, it's okay, it's okay. Everybody, don't panic. We have a plan. Everyone, stay put right where you are, and then we're going to come around and take your passports and scan them, and the system is going to, is going to reassign you a flight that you can fly to be able to get out to where you're going. And when we heard this explained, some language barriers and stuff, but that, that's the gist of what they were saying. And when we heard it, we were so glad to hear because what went from, oh no, we're stranded, what are we going to do, what are we going to do, became, it's okay. We know you, we see you, we've got a plan. And so we waited, and we waited, and they scanned our passports, and we waited, and we waited, and they scanned our passports, and we waited, and we waited, and it became very clear that they did not have a plan. <laughs> there was no plan in place. When you and I are looking to the world, when we're looking for an answer in kind of therapeutic culture to make ourselves feel better, to take care of our guilt and our shame, to live a better life, to be emotionally whole, and all of these things, when that's all we have, we essentially have a plan like that airline. They put a name on us. They identified, you're feeling lost right now. You don't know what you're doing. Yeah, that's me. That's me. That's me but there's no solution. And it feels good. That's a roller coaster. Maybe you felt that at different points in your life. That roller coaster of, I don't know what I'm going to do. And someone says, it's okay. We'll take care of it. And you say, fantastic. I can relax only to find out that they don't have it and you can't relax. That up and down feeling. That's what we have when we're chasing after a removal of these things apart from the gospel. We don't want to do that. We, we can't do that. Of course, it calls us to imagine, what if, what if that wasn't the end? What if they really did have a plan? That would have been such an amazing thing. And that's, that's of course, what, what, God is, what God is saying. I see you. I know. I have a plan. It's going to be okay. There's a comfort that is coming that will surpass everything. And so really, you might feel like you are unseen and unheard. You might think, you might have things that have happened to you and you feel like you can't really talk about them. You might have done things that you feel like if anyone ever found out, I would be, I would be done. I'd be cast out forever. For you and I, Jesus is the perfect lamb, the perfect sacrifice. After a life that he lived among unclean people and things, he was touching what he wasn't supposed to, dining with people he wasn't supposed to be hanging out with. Then he became the guilt offering for you and I. He didn't say a word, but he bore the shame. He was taken outside the gates. He was hung on a tree. Both of those things in the Old Testament are cursed things. He bore the curse. And he did it for you. He did it for me. And so by application this morning, the first one is I want to invite you to be convinced. 
Be convinced that the final, complete, and perfect atonement has already been accomplished for you. Know that. Hear it. Believe it. It is, it is true. But as we're hearing, it isn't good enough for us to just have our feelings of guilt removed. Oh, that's great. Some people do that. They may come to the Bible and they may read a, read a passage and, and that day, that particular passage just kind of help them feel a little bit better and, and they associate that. They say, oh, well, that, that must be what we're talking about when we're talking about the gospel. Well, no, not necessarily. You may have taken it out of context. You may not have understood it. There's a number of things that may be happening. We don't want to be, be satisfied. We don't want to be stopped with just having our feelings of guilt removed. And so the second thing that we can see here in this verse and be reminded of is that the gospel brings comfort that comes with a reality. Do you hear it? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and then there will no longer be any death. It's not just there's death, but you're not sad about it. No, there's no longer any death. It's all going to stop. There will be no longer any crying. There will no longer be any pain. Do you hear that? Do you hear how amazing those words are? No longer any pain because the first things have passed away. The reality is so clear here in this passage. Objectively, no more death we, of course, know that the reason that happens is because of what Jesus has accomplished. Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus defeated death. And we know here that one day that reality will be clear to everyone. And we can see here that it's, it's grounded in an even bigger reality. We can hear the voice from the throne in verse 5. Behold, I am making all things new. If you and I miss the reality behind the feelings of guilt, this is something that the left side, the therapeutic culture can't do. There's a reality behind it. It's not just you feel better about your life. No, this is God has objectively declared that this is true. And if that's the case, then that means so many things for us. That means that faith doesn't center or depend on your feelings. It, it, it doesn't matter how we feel about it. If one day I feel, man, I am so glad I'm saved and I feel so good about my salvation and I just love Jesus so much. And the next day we're like, man, I just, I don't know if I'm feeling this thing. Which day am I more saved on? Both of them. It doesn't depend on how you feel from day to day because it's objectively true. That is an amazing thing. This is a hope then because it's objective that can't disappoint. We, of course, all have had moments where we've had false hope. You've had something that you thought was going to be good that ended up not to be so good or you thought was going to happen and then didn't happen. That doesn't happen here. This is a certainty. It is here and it is present. Since it's objective, it's a hope that can be shared. Don't miss this one. It can be shared. 
if all we have is something that, well, this made me feel better, but we all have our own path to feeling better in life. And that's our whole idea of the gospel. What are we even talking about? No. This can be shared because it is objective hope that is offered to all people that Jesus Christ died for sinners like you and me. It is an objective hope. And because it is that way, you and I can share it. If it was just a feeling that we couldn't share it, everyone would just be left on their own to find their own personal path to self-fulfillment. And that's a hopeless journey. You'll always be on that search. But this is a hope that is solid, that can be shared. That means that it's a hope that can withstand any of the nagging voice of doubt. This hope can withstand doubt because, again, it's objective. It's reality. It's true. We can have those things, those voices in our mind that say, well, what if, what if it's not true? And we can doubt those very doubts and go back to the reality of what God has accomplished and be reminded that it is true and that it is real. Because it's objective, it is also a faith that can help us interpret reality in every field of human endeavor. We can interpret reality in every field of human endeavor. Anything that you do, the Bible can help speak truth into that. If all the gospel is, is a, is a way for us to, to uh, try to feel better about ourselves in a kind of a therapeutic kind of way, then it doesn't give, it doesn't speak into these other areas of life. The world is happy to give us this kind of therapeutic thing, but, but we want to say, no, the, the gospel, the Bible can actually speak to uh, politics. It can speak to medicine. It can speak to physics. It can speak to art. It can speak to psychology. And it will stand its own against any of those things. And of course, as we have the individual conversations, sometimes we have to tease out exactly what it means. What does the Bible say versus what did we think the Bible said? Like, those are things that happen. But along the way, it speaks truth to all of reality. And if all we have is a, is a faith that tries to help us feel better, then it doesn't get to do that anymore. Do not settle for a faith that can't speak to all of your life. We actually need that kind of faith. We want to avoid a version of the gospel that's just a way of seeking inner peace or wholeness or making us better people. It's so much more than that. I'm going to give an example. I don't usually do this. Um, we're pretty picky, as you know, about music that we do at Paramount. So we'll sort of really think hard about the lyrics that we sing together as a church. No one has, has mentioned this song, but we've done, uh, we have done quite a few songs by the artist Shane and Shane. Now, this isn't one that they wrote, but there is one that they've, they've sung recently. And it's a version of the Lord's Prayer that they've done. Now, the song itself ha doesn't have any heresy in it, so I'm not about to go like heresy hunting or anything, but I want to draw a specific illustration here to help us see this. What they do is they take the lines from the Lord's Prayer, the kind of last part of the prayer. It says, Father, let your kingdom come. Father, let your will be done. That sounds familiar. On earth as it is in heaven. Got it? Then they add, right here in my heart. Father, let your kingdom come. Father, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right here in my heart. Well, so if you listen to that, I'm not, I'm not coming after him hard, but I, but I want to draw a distinction here. 
Is that true? Yeah, that's true. We want the kingdom of God to be ruling our hearts. We want Jesus to be Lord of our hearts. That is true. But one of the things about the Lord's Prayer is that Jesus begins by looking at God's people. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He, he continues to, to describe our prayer for food, our reliance on God as God's people. But in this moment, this prayer that Jesus teaches his people to pray is a bigger prayer than change my heart. This prayer, let uh, heaven and earth, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The picture, the kind of picture that Jesus has there is the picture of Revelation 21. It is heaven and earth combining together. It is let what is true in heaven be true on earth and let these things come together. Let the rule and the presence of God be here. And that means it touches on everything. And I think it's a bad idea for us to continually, again and again, make it about what's just our hearts. Again, is it our hearts? Yes, it is. God changes us from the inside. But the gospel has implications that ripple out into every facet of human life. And when you and I pray, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, our prayer should be a vision like this of Revelation 21 of no more death, no more crying, no more pain. Let God's will be done. Let's not find ways to reduce it. It's not worth it. Some of my fear in addressing these questions like this is that in focusing on the big picture, in, in looking at the future, in looking at, at this, at the end, like this, we can, is it possible? Maybe we're, maybe we're minimizing the effects of like, I don't know how to say it, like psychological healing. Like, like what's happening, what happens if you, go to a, if you go to a secular counselor and talk to them and get some practical techniques? What are you getting there? I think we would all say, I think the Bible would compel us to say that there is common grace everywhere. There are people everywhere who can give you good advice in different aspects of life. But we would want to say there's more to it. Do not hear me to say, for instance, as we look back at passages like uh, Tamar in the Old Testament or things like that, do not hear me to say that, that trauma isn't real, for instance. I work with veterans, homeless folks in the community sometimes, and I can tell you in that population, there is uh, PTSD is a thing. It exists. You experience something and then it kind of almost rewires your brain and makes you react to things in ways that you didn't even know or wouldn't even expect. The gospel is therapeutic. Triggers, for instance, things that the, the moment, the smell, the person, the thing that comes up in life, those exist. That happens. Sometimes I think maybe people who are familiar with the, the biblical counseling kind of thing, they would think, well, well, we don't want to talk about those things. That's not, that's not right. That's a secular language. Well, okay, fine. Call it what you want. But there are instances where, like we talked about in ABF, the heat comes into your life, where something happens in your life 
where the, the weather presses down on you and it will cause a response to come from your heart. That's what, we've been, that's what we've been looking at. That's what we've been saying. And we don't want to say that's not true. Of course that's true. What we want to say, in fact, is that the Bible speaks to the guilt and the shame and the fear in these motivations. But it addresses the problem at the root. And it doesn't satisfy itself with just dealing with the symptoms. When you and I try to go back to this kind of therapeutic culture, we can be tempted to define ourselves by our actions or by the actions of others. We can be defined by trauma or defined by what happens to us. Ladies and gentlemen, guilt will try to wreck you. The enemy would love nothing more than to use those things to destroy you. The word of Satan means accuser. Look what you've done. How could you? That's the enemy's primary tactic. You can never be clean. You can never be whole. But, but this, this picture of Revelation 21, this is a declaration that you are more than what happened to you. You are more than the sum of the things that you have done. Again, we go back to those things and we just think, well, if I could just have what I lost back. There's a fantastic example that we read in Scripture. The story, I hope you're familiar with it, of the prodigal son. You know the story that a man had two sons and the younger son decided he didn't want anything to do with the family and asked his father for the inheritance early, what he would normally get at his father's death. And he took it and he ran away and he squandered it all. When he lost it all, he was like hanging out in the stable with the pigs. He realizes what he's done. And, and the picture is what, what he looks for and what he decides is that, man, I had so, it was so much better. I can't believe I gave it up. And he kind of rehearses a speech to himself of what he's going to tell his father. He says, I'm going to go back to my father. I'm going to tell him I have sinned. And I'm going to ask him, please, just make me as one of your hired servants. I don't, I don't need all of that back. Just, just, just let me back. Give me a place to live. I'll work. I'll work it all off. I'll do everything that I need to do. But what happens in the story? When the son gets back, he doesn't even get a chance to open up his mouth to make that suggestion. The father comes running after him, grabs him and says, hey, kill the fatted calf. We're going to have a party. My son's back. For you and I to just look at being healed of what has happened in the past or just have our guilt removed is like the son going back and saying, man, can I just have a place to stay? Just make me a servant. And God will not be satisfied. He'll say, no, I've got a party for you. There's so much more than just feeling better. There's so much more than just removing the guilt, than just removing the shame, than just removing fear. God has an incredible reality that is stored and planned for you. And so... By way of application, don't settle. Don't settle. 
don't settle for anything less than the reality of the glory of God's presence. Remember, that's what all this here in Revelation 21 is based on. That, that all of this, it's not just, oh, there's no more tears. It's not just, there's no more death. It's not just all the bad things are gone. It's what's present. God himself dwells with his people. Don't settle for anything less. It is a celebration. It is a party. Don't settle. The therapeutic culture, the therapeutic gospel would have you settle for feeling better. Don't settle. There's so much more. And it'll be hard, of course. It's going to mean that we, we actively stop defining ourselves by what we've done and what's been done to us. And you and I, if you're anything like me, we like to be our own saviors. If there's a problem that we can solve, you lay it out, you give us a checklist like Court was talking about first hour in ABF. These are, these are things that, that, man, hey, we can do it. Just give me the plan. Not going to work. We have to give that up. We have to give it up and recognize that we are sinners who are helpless, who are unclean. We are sufferers and sinners at the same time. And in that, God's grace meets us. When we are at our least deserving, God's grace meets us. The final thing that we can see here from this passage that I want us to recognize is we find right here in the last part of it, there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain than we read this. The first things have passed away. What an incredible thing to hear. Do you hear that? The first things have passed away. What are the first things? Well, hold on a second. What are, we, what are we saying here? Look back at verse, verse 1 of chapter 21. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. Okay? Those are the first things. The ones that were there beforehand, the first heaven, the first earth, those are gone, and now there's something new. You can see again in verse 5, he sits on the throne and says, Behold, I am making all things new. It's this moment of transformation as the old is going away and the new is coming. It's a reality on the uh, cosmic scale that happens for every believer at the moment that we trust in Christ. There is a new creation when you believe in Christ. The old has passed away. The new has come. In, a, in a, a picture, of a foretaste of this moment that's coming up. All of, the, all of the old then, consider all of the things that are a part of that. It looks all the way back to the places in Scripture. Like Tamar, asking, how can I be rid of this shame or rid of this disgrace? The tearful prayer of Jesus, asking for God's will to be done. The story of the prodigal filled with regret. Would the Father ever take him back? And it's for you and I too. The memories that we don't want to think about. The conversations you're afraid to have. The full weight of guilt and shame and fear that rightfully belong to you. All of it comes right here and it stops. It stops. 
There's an end to it. And so there is a question that we might ask ourselves as we think about this. We ask the question, it sounds good, but isn't it, isn't it just too good to be true? Isn't it just wishful thinking? Well, if that's you who's tempted to ask that question, I'd like for you to consider, think about it again. You know, everyone, it doesn't matter who you are, no matter how secular, no matter what religion, or no matter where you come from, you have a view of what humanity is supposed to look like. There's a picture of, of justice. There's a picture of here's how things should be. And here's what we want to work toward being. Everyone has that kind of view of the, of the end of humanity. But there is no other, there is no substitute. There's no other life, view of life that fits the way that you and I experience life as embodied creatures that are body and soul. Right? What I mean is, some might be tempted to say, uh, well, if you, if you just ignore all the physical stuff and just focus on your soul and you, you, uh, you remove all earthly pleasures and all the things of the world and you just uh, seek for the purification of the soul, that somehow that's going to be a good thing. But that doesn't, that doesn't fit. We, we are bodies. We, are, we, we live this way in flesh. And some might be tempted to say, well, you're just chemicals. And everything can be explained in terms of chemical reactions in your brain and things like that. And we want to say from Scripture, no, it's not enough. No, you, ha- you have a soul. You are, you are eternal. You can actually have your body in the ground and be present with the Lord. That's a possibility. Because we are body and soul. And that reality of both of those things at play in the, in the same kind of way, the Bible speaks to that and tells us that in a way that no other of you can. No other view of life so comprehensively addresses us as both sinners and sufferers. Other views of life will be tempted to do one or the other. You'll feel guilty because of everything that you've done, and now you need to feel bad, and you need to try harder and do better and all of those things. Or they're going to say, well, it's, it's really not that bad. Look at everything that's happened to you. It's not your fault. But the Bible doesn't do either of those things. It addresses you and I head on with all of our sin. It actually, it actually amplifies it, our suffering. And calling it sin, it says, no, not only is it not a big deal, it's a cosmic offense. It is against the God of the universe. It is deserving of an eternity separated from God in hell. But... There's a redeemer who's bigger than all of that. And he desires to draw us to himself. And if you're still not sure about this, I want to encourage you to recognize and see that this end, this declaration of the end of death has actually already started. It started as a historical reality, verifiable, look into it, that Jesus walked out of the grave. This future reality already has a guarantee. It had a guarantee when Jesus walked out of the grave. There was further proof when God sent his Holy Spirit to be in his people and help them to see and know the reality of these things. 
The end has already come and we can have confidence. On the way here, I was listening to an an artist named Jess Ray and she has a fantastic song, Too Good. And I was struck with this line. She said, she says, in speaking of kind of these things, she says, it may be too good to be understood, but it's not too good to be true. It may be too good to be understood, but it's not too good to be true. Praise God for that. As I was thinking about these things, I was uh, reflecting, you know, recently uh, we lost, uh, say we, like as a Christian community, the church alive right now, uh, lost a pastor named Tim Keller in New York City. And uh, he's with the Lord now. He had cancer and it was for a number of years. But one of the things that kind of stood out to me in thinking about this is there was a, there's a, a line that he loved to quote from the book, The Return of the King from J.R.R. Tolkien. And it's this moment near the end of the story where um, Samwise, one of the, one of the main character kind of sidekicks, he, he's been through everything. He's been through the ringer. He's basically dead at the end of the story. And, and he wakes up and he sees the wizard Gandalf, who he thought was dead. And he's amazed that he sees him. And the question that, that Keller referenced, and the, the question that's there is he asks, Samwise asks, is everything sad going to come untrue? Is everything sad going to come untrue? And the, the answer to that, of course, for the believer is, yeah. And I love that question because it's a, it's a different kind of question. Do you, you hear it? It's, it's not the same as asking, is... Um, Is it going to be as if nothing ever happened? None of the bad stuff happened. That's not what he says. He says, is it going to come untrue? It's not as if it never happened. It happened. But the the very kind of fabric of reality is changed so that a new ending becomes possible. That's what God is capable of. That's what God is doing. Yeah, it, it it often looks in our lives like there's no hope, like there's no way out, like there's no chance forward, like there's no, there's no, this can't be good. There's no good ending here. But this passage tells us again and again, yeah, there is. It will. Those things will come untrue. As we think about this, I was thinking about the idea of, of accents in languages, not like regional accents, but like the accent of, on a word. You know, if you have a multi-syllable word, one of those syllables is usually going to have the accent. So some of us will jokingly say sometimes you can put the emphasis on the wrong syllable, right? That gets at what you're doing. You're, you're moving the accent into the wrong part of the word. All of the syllables of a word are needed to make that word mean what it means. But where the accent is, is crucial to pronouncing the word correctly. Our final point of application this morning. <coughs> is move the accent mark. Move the accent mark on your life to the syllable of hope. This moment at the end, this I'm making all things new, 
all of this picture reorders everything of our lives. It reorders everything that we see. It gives us a hope that seemed impossible beforehand. It's only by seeing this hope, this I am making all things new, by moving the accent of the word. Yes, all the other syllables, all those things that happened in your life, they still happened. But God is redeeming those things as the accent is moved to this final moment of hope. That's where it belongs. We are more. That is how we can see that we, you're more than what's taken from you. Just like penguins are black and white, the gospel speaks to guilt and shame and fear in a powerful way. But you and I are only scratching the surface of what it means. There is a new reality that is coming. You're more than what you've done. You're more than what has happened to you. And you have not just a place to live with the servants, but a glorious feast, a glorious future that belongs to you in Christ. Don't settle for less. Let's pray. Our God, this morning, we thank you for your word. We thank you for, for speaking it to us. I pray that as we reflect on the things that we've heard, that you would help any um, difficulty that I've had in, in clearly communicating be removed. We pray that your spirit, the teacher, would be at work applying these truths to our hearts. Help us to see all that you have accomplished. Help us to refuse to settle for any less. Help us to be convinced that the glory of your presence is so much better than anything we could possibly have. And it is you, yourself, that you give to us in the gospel. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.